beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, including boys and girls. If you recall the last time I read to you, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, 24b to 26 in the context of the body of Christ in having the same care for one another. As it turns out, this is the springboard for the next three sermons in a series with an overall theme called One Anothering. So just to touch on that a little as to what that first sermon was, we learned where God put you and me within the congregation, how we were knitted in a mother's womb, and how that related to the body of Christ composed by God. So, one anothering. That's how we could summarize a part of the Christian life described in the New Testament. There are a good number of passages that touch on it in different ways. Many of them are commands, prescriptions, love one another, have fellowship with one another, greet one another, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, serve one another, show hospitality to one another, and many more. We could say that all of these find their starting point basically in the same place, in what we read together this morning in the words of our text. We are members one of another, similarly in Ephesians 4, verse 25. In the overall scheme of the book of Romans, our text comes in the third part. In catechism, catechism classes, the students may have learned that the three-part division of the Heidelberg Catechism is modeled after Romans. We can roughly divide that book into three parts, the same three, sin, salvation, and service. Romans 1, 28 to chapter 3, verse 20, Romans 3, 21 to chapter 11, verse 36, and Romans 12, 1 to chapter 16, 27. That means we are here in Romans 12, right at the beginning of our life of service. Or to use the words of Lord's Day 1 that, come, that some students are busy memorizing, third, how I am to be thankful for such deliverance. That's specific to the catechism, of course. But it well summarizes what's going on here, too. Romans 12, verse 1 opens with these words, I appeal to you, therefore. What is therefore? That word, therefore, it's to tie Romans 12 and all that follows to what, what's preceded. Because of our great deliverance by God's grace in Christ, here then is how we ought to live. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. From there, the apostle will offer many instructions about Christian living. But first he comes to this, our theme for the year. In Christ, we are members one of another. Here, foundations are laid for our understanding of one anothering. It's all part of our life of service, in thankfulness, as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is where we will go first this morning. I summarize the message as follows. In Christ, we are members one of another. That should touch, firstly, how we view ourselves, and secondly, how we view each other. 
So first, let's look at how we view ourselves. Our text this morning, verse 4, begins with a simple word, a very small word, but an important one. The word for. For, as in one body, we have many members. That word tells us very simply that we have to reach back to what comes before it. The point is this. The point that is being made here in our text, closely connected with the previous one point, for, as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. If we would strip away some of the subclauses, the parts between commas, we'd be left with the main thought, for we, though many, are one body. Many what? Well, many different individuals. But in the body, we cease thinking only individualistically and instead think collectively, corporately. Corpus meaning body. Though many individuals, we are one body. That's then going to touch how we view ourselves. Now, I could have chosen to use the word think when I worded the first point, how we think of ourselves. That might have made the connection to the word in verse 3 a little closer. There's obviously something going on there with the word thinking. The Apostle Paul plays with that word a little, adding different prefixes to it as needed. Not to think, then we ought to think, but to think. The risk sometimes, though, is that when we start talking about thinking, that we limit it to our minds some brain activity, if you will. But the apostle has more in mind. It's not just about thinking with the head. It's about how, it's about this way of thinking that comes out in the way of living and conducting oneself. That's tough to capture in a, any one word. And maybe that, that word view doesn't really capture it either. But the point was to ask, how do we view ourselves? That is, how do we think of ourselves? And how do we work that out in oneself in our daily life? Again, when we come to realize and believe that we, though many, are one body, that is going to have to touch how we view ourselves in our thinking and in our acting. The apostle speaks with authority in verse 3. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone. He knows God's grace is calling him to be an apostle, to bring the word of God. That's how he's emboldened to bring, the, bring this word. But that's not all he's doing and saying here. He's already alerting his readers to the idea of grace. By the grace given to me. Hold that thought. I say to everyone among you, he then instructs, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's the first instance of the word think, not to think more highly. It's just the word for think with a prefix attached to it. We get the English word hyper from that pretext. Hyperactive, hypersensitive. It simply means overly, overly active or 
overly sensitive. Don't hyperthink yourself. Don't be overly thinking yourself. It's good to take note of that. What comes to your mind when you hear the translation we read, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think? You might get a certain idea in mind of what he means. People who think highly of themselves might be full of themselves. They brag and they boast about themselves and their accomplishments. They go on and on with the story, this story and that story of how great they are and how they're going to achieve this or that. They somehow manage to turn every conversation about something into a competition, an opportunity for one-upmanship. We call them proud. And we don't get to sit here this morning thinking, thinking to ourselves, oh yes, I know someone like that. That makes you think of, it's easy and tempting to do that, isn't it, when we sit in church? Think of how this applies to him or to her. But no, it's an opportunity for self-examination, to view ourselves. Am I someone like that? But that's not all the Apostle has in mind. It's not just people who think too highly of themselves. It's about being overly busy with themselves. That comes very naturally and easy to us, doesn't it? It's been that way since the fall into sin. I'm quite happy to think of myself all the time. I can fill my agenda with me things. And the culture we live in encourages that as well. Individualism is alive and well. And it can feed the thoughts to our heart. Then that doesn't mean that we're always talking ourselves up, like the bolster and the bragger. We're just busy with ourselves, self-occupied. This hyper-thinking ourselves then happens other ways too. Yes, it might mean elevating ourselves, but it can also be quite the opposite. People who are always beating themselves down, convinced they're nobodies. We're aware of our weaknesses and shortcomings. We daily struggle with our sin. If we don't see that and experience that, that's a whole different issue. But knowing it and wrestling with it ought not to totally weigh us down as a child of God. Not so completely that there's constantly dark that we're dark and depressed. Oh, Christians can get depressed too. That's the title of a book, a helpful book, and an important topic. But there's still the risk that part of it comes from being too busy with ourselves. Why am I feeling so miserable, so down all the time? Am I hyperthinking myself? Maybe it's about measuring up to some standards. Maybe it's about comparing myself to others. Maybe it's about worrying about how I'm perceived in the eyes of others. Maybe the current situation isn't helping at all. There's far too much of that going around. How this affects me, impacts me, bothers me, annoys me. We become so inward focused. There are so many ways we hyperthink ourselves or overly busy with ourselves. That can't be in the body of Christ, says Paul. 
the many members of the body ought to think with sober judgment. What is that? How is that? According to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's admittedly a bit of a tricky expression. But what he's saying is this. Don't be overthinking yourselves. Be thinking only along the lines of faith. The faith that God has assigned because faith is always a gift of God. Yes, there are some who have a weak faith, Romans 14, verse 1, and others a strong faith. But whatever the amount of that faith, if you will, faith is a gift of God's grace. Members, one of another, is to think that way of themselves. They think of the ties that bind, the gift of faith that God has assigned. Faith that joins us to Christ by grace. See, the Apostle Paul in verse 3 already brought that grace in. I said, hold on to that thought. He knows God's grace to him in Christ. And so he urges his fellow Christians not to overly think themselves. As much as Paul, we are altogether dependent on God's grace shown to us in Christ, to whom we are joined by faith. Will I boast in myself? No, says Paul. When we boast, we boast in the Lord. Will I occupy my time with myself? No. Christ, in his grace, bought me with his precious blood to make me his possession. I am a slave to Christ. Will I live in darkness and despair of my own making? No. I may know of God's light in Christ, of his forgiving grace in Christ, the washing away of my sins in his precious blood. In him I'm immensely worthy, no longer a slave, but a child of God. So, beloved, the faith God has assigned, the faith that God has gifted, points us to always to Christ. That ought to bring us down a few notches to the one who's just a little full of himself, and it ought to bring a few notches to the one who's always down on, her, on herself. And it ought to relieve the one who's always comparing himself. I am who I am in Christ. How else can it be in the body of Christ? We are individual members of it. Though many, we are one body in Christ. And what joins us together is faith in Christ. That must touch the way we view ourselves. I am where I am, not because I've earned it, because I've worked so hard for it, because I've ultimately chosen it. No, it's all by faith, a gift of God. I know it's all of grace, God's doing. We view ourselves by faith, always in Christ, as individuals still part of the body of Christ. No wonder we confess, first thing in the Catechism, my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong in body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the starting point, isn't it, brothers and sisters? When, I view, when we view ourselves, does that inform my actions, my choices, my decisions? For to think with sober judgment is to come by faith again and again to the gospel of grace, 
of God's great love to undeserving sinners, even enemies. A great love shown in the finished work of Christ when he kept the law perfectly and bore our punishment com completely. A finished work for me, so that where I deserve death, I have the gift of life. And not just for me, but me together with all who belong to the body of Christ with me. I'm not just thinking individually, but corporately, that I'm no longer inwardly looking, but outward. We look at one another in Christ. Then how we view ourselves flows over into how we view each other. That's our second point, how we view each other. I said earlier that the main phrase of our text, stripping away those subclauses, was this. We, though many, are one body in Christ. Or even more simply than that, we are one body in Christ. Don't hyperthink yourselves, for we are one body in Christ. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul calls, call, calls Christ the head and we his members. Here in our text, if we didn't really get it, the Apostle is persistent. He spells it out. As if to say, we are one body isn't enough, he adds, and all individually members one of another. Even as we've been viewing ourselves in Christ, this body image touches how we view one another. I can't think of myself in isolation from others. The Apostle is addressing those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Romans 1, verse 7. Yes, there is a way in which the Catholic or universal church is the body of Christ. Everyone who believes in him is joined to him by faith. That's everyone from the beginning of the world to its end. But when the Apostle but when the Apostle uses this body language, this body imagery, he addresses those in Rome. He addresses the saints who are in Ephesus. The same imagery is there in chapter 4 of that letter. And he addresses the church of God in Corinth. Again, same imagery there, 1 Corinthians 12. It's in the local church that we get to see the clearer picture of the whole. It's not that here in grace, where perhaps we're the hand, or in Redeemer, there's the feet, while in, in Corinth, there's another part of the body. No, we are the body of Christ. We are individually members one of another. The Apostle is highlighting, on the one hand, this profound unity that exists, that must exist. If I am who I am in Christ, and you are who you are only in Christ, then that's where the unity exists. Not because you and I think the same, talk the same, act the same. Not because we share common bloodlines or interests of citizenships. No, it's in Christ. That's been described as the mystical union. It's something we can't fully wrap our heads around, yet it presents a powerful picture for us, this unity as a body. It's something Jesus prayed for fervently in his high priestly prayer, that there would be unity among those who believe in him, just as the Father and the Son are one. And what a mystery that is, the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one true eternal God. 
May they be one, Jesus prayed, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Mysterious or not, it's not the point, though. The, the apostle is describing a gracious reality. He's not offering it to encourage being together, working together, growing together. He's teaching the Romans as he's teaching us by this inspiration of the Spirit, that there is a glorious reality exists, that this glorious reality exists. Through faith in Christ, we are one body, individually members one of another. Understand it all fully or not, it's the truth. When we truly believe in Jesus Christ, everyone who truly believes, there is this connection. I am in Christ. You are in Christ. We are individually members one of another, members of the body under the headship of Christ. Considering who I am, weak and sinful on my own, and considering who you are, weak and simple on your own, this is an awesome reality beyond comprehension. Truly all of grace. Because I might not, and probably would not, ever choose that or do that all on my own. Honestly, no. Think for yourselves. Would you surround yourself with these? Would you join yourself to these? Would you save yourself that you are one of these? Or one with these? And yet this, that's the mystery, the reality that exists. I ought to be touched how we view one another. If we, when we, truly believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, this is, there is this unity, a unity that must constantly be fed. In his teaching in John 15, Jesus uses another image to teach what feeds that unity. That's the image of the vine and the branches. The branches are grafted into the vine. They draw the nourishment from the vine. It's why we so desperately need to be constantly listening in, in the preaching of the gospel, the word of Christ. It's why we need to be with the word of Christ. We need to be reading it, studying it, meditating on it, applying it, working with it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians 3, verse 16. Then we are equipped to view one another the right way. We are united as individuals together in one body, members one of another. That's something that will have to grow over time and keep growing. Ephesians 4, where we find very similar, similar words, the growth to maturity is a theme. The body grows and develops to mature manhood is the way Paul puts it. As though the church can be in baby stages and then see growth and development. We have to grow up, Paul says, into the head, who is Christ. You know how a baby's head is far too big for its body proportionately. It has to grow up into it. Christ is our head. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He has dominion over all things, visible and invisible, 
He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and we are, we are members of him, united with him by faith, you and I who truly believe. Then we will also have to grow in him under his headship as his body. That means that while there is this wonderful, be it mysterious, reality of unity in him, there's also the important diversity. For as in one body, note the unity, as in one body we have, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, diversity. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. There is diversity and unity. The members, of, the members of our body do not all have the same function. You know that. I know that. It's obvious, right? Ears, eyes, nose, mouth, hands, feet. And those are just parts of the body we see. The whole body is not and cannot be an eye or an ear or any other part. That diversity is necessary. It's what makes David praise God in Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, intricately woven together already in my mother's womb. This diversity in the church is God's handiwork. Here there are people, men and women, boys and girls, with different backgrounds, different temperaments, different abilities, different environments, different you name it, the list grows and grows. And it's not just that. Right after our text in verses 6, 7, and 8, the apostle goes on to spell out different gifts. Gifts given by God's grace. Gifts of prophecy, service, teaching, exhorting, contributing, contributing, leading, doing acts of mercy. And the apostle says, use them. His list isn't exhaustive. There are seven beautiful gifts there, but in the body there are certainly far more. We might not even always call them gifts. They're just things we do. Ways the body functions together. Things we have to offer and to contribute. We might say, it is really a gift. When the Spirit works in our hearts, and a desire to serve the body, to contribute to the function of the body, that's a gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle talks about healing, helping, administering. It doesn't always have to be so glamorous or noteworthy. Maybe all we need sometimes is a gift of schlepping, like the young group of young people who helped move the entire house of furniture from an elderly couple's home for the Ukrainian effort, or a lady's helping with clothing and miscellaneous house household goods as well. Whatever it is, the Apostle Paul says after our text, use them. Use them in the functioning of the body. Not hyper-thinking yourself, but thinking of others. That promotes growth. The members of the body need one another. Being members one of another touches how we view one another. It's not just intellectual reality that we are one, though many. It's not just theoretical. It has to be, it has to come to expression. Unity in Christ, diversity in functions. The body knows and needs both.
There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. The parts of the body can't function off on their own, doing their own thing. It's no wonder, then, that in the New Testament is full of these instructions about one anothering, loving, fellowshipping, greeting, serving, showing hospitality, praying. These promote the growth and unity in the body. There's also the flip side. No grumbling against one another, nor speaking evil or gossiping, not hating one another, not lying, not biting or devouring, because where these happen, they cause division and break down the body. They don't promote growth or maturity, promote growth to maturity. It highlights how much we need each other. Romans 12 opened with this exhortation to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How can I do that without the active help of my brothers and sisters, the other members of the body I belong to? Do I gain as much from my study of scriptures on my own as I do when I am together with others, digging it in together, wrestling through its meaning and application? Can I live the life of the disciple of Christ without the nurture of a loving community around me who encourage me, pray for me, and model it for me? When I notice the blind, will I notice the blind spots in my own life of obedience to Christ without fellow believers pointing them out to me? If I think too highly of myself, if I'm hyperthinking myself, I might not see that need. But when I know myself in Christ and I realize it belonged also to others, I need them, even as they need me. Christ put me here, joined me to him and to others as members of the body. Just like God creates our physical body, knits the parts together just so, never making a mistake, he does the same in the church, doesn't he? God's work is always purposeful. Why does he put such diversity here? Yes, here in grace too. Perhaps it's to wonder all the more at how profound a unity can still exist through the faith in Christ. Perhaps it's to promote all the more the energy and diligence required to grow in maturity. The greater the diversity, the more we will have to trust in the power of the Spirit to keep working unity. It's one, is one anothering difficult? Maybe we need to consider how we view ourselves first. Maybe we need to consider how we're viewing each other. When it comes to specifics, there are things we can explore even more over the next few weeks. Explore in the light of the gracious reality we are members one of another. God be praised for this work in, in him, Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the sermons, let us rise for those who are able and sing Psalm 133.